Our final reading today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 21 through 32. When they had brought them, which is like the worst possible way to start a passage, right? They's and them. When they, meaning the high priests and Sadducees, brought them, meaning the apostles, they, again, the high priests, had them, the apostles, stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as the right hand, as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth And the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I mentioned to um, the youth, one of the things that I hope to do over the next few weeks from now until Pentecost is to think about what is it to live in this holy story. On Easter, I mentioned a bit about this, right? That we have this redemptive story resurrection happening, and that it's hard to believe. Even the apostles, who now are standing firm against the authorities, thought it was a bunch of garbage. But maybe there is something more to this story, something deeper to what we witness on this day. Now again, like I said last week, this is not something that we can necessarily explain or prove in scientific ways. If we could, then everybody would believe and it would be done, right? Because we could sort of put the proof up and be done. But instead, this is something that we can live into. If I took each and every single one of you and weighed you and got your height and got to record some of the more interesting moments on a book, it will not tell your whole story, will it? There are certain things that our objective reality, as good as it is, has brought us so many wonderful technologies, cannot completely tell the whole experience of who we are and how we live. And so it is the same with this resurrection story. I would love to break it down into its component pieces and mark it up to history, but at the end of the day, wouldn't it be lacking something? But still, it doesn't exactly seem fair for me to be like, oh, we should do this, and then not maybe spend a few weeks talking about what it looks like. And so between now and Pentecost, we're going to linger in Acts, because Acts is part of this time in the liturgical calendar. It's one of the companions. But also, it really does seem to talk about what does it mean to be people that live as Christians after hearing this resurrection story. What does it mean to live life knowing that Jesus came back? Maybe not easily understood or interpreted, but how do we live life that way? And these were normal folks trying to do the same things that we are. Trying to live into the resurrection. 
Now, like I said, this Acts section here sort of leaves a little bit to, desire, to be desired on the beginning with a bunch of theys and thems, and you don't really know the full context. So to back you up a little bit in Acts 5 so we can figure out where our scene is today, many of you may have heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Right? These were two individuals who were connected to the church, and they sold a plot of land, and they got some money back, and they weren't quite honest to the disciples and the new apostles about how much money that they were giving, and they died. This is a really difficult story, one that I would not recommend talking about during uh, stewardship season. Um, not a good approach to stewardship. So big things are happening in the church, right? People are being struck dead. And then immediately after that, we hear the story of people coming around the new apostles who now have the Holy Spirit and are being healed. They're just coming one after another. All Peter has to do is even touch the shadow of somebody and they're healed. Good, big things are happening in this early church. People are saying, oh, this is awesome. Now, you were somebody in authority. You started to see these upstarts doing all sorts of things. People are dying. People are being healed. All of this stuff, you might not be too excited about it. And so where we arrive in this scene is that the apostles had recently been thrown in jail. And an angel of God had broken open the chains and said, go preach in the temple. And so they did that. Understandably, if I had thrown somebody in jail and the next day I see them out preaching, I'm going to be a little frustrated. So they say, come on, we need to talk to you about this. I want to repeat what they said. We gave you strict orders not to preach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. Friends, the story has power. The story of the resurrection has power. These were the most powerful leaders in Jerusalem of their day, and they want to sequester this message. We told you not to teach this message. We told you better than this. These folks, they want to maintain the control that they had. So don't go preaching this crazy message that is changing people's lives because we don't know what it will do. Moreover, perhaps the most telling moment in this passage is when they say, we don't want this man's blood back on us. Tell this holy story of resurrection meant that these people want to avoid the blame and likely lose the power that they had received for themselves for who knows how long. You wanted to be anybody in that time in Jerusalem, you could be a priest. You were stable and secure and had political power. Pilate, the person who we talked about that was such a... um, a catalyst for Jesus' crucifixion, had now gone back to where he was by the sea. He was no longer in Jerusalem, so really these are the folks in power. Don't go preaching Jesus' name. We want to maintain the power that we have, so why preach this other message? 
Because at the end of the day, I think they know what this may mean for them. What does it mean for people in power when a different story is told? It may mean that there are consequences for those leaders. And gosh, I think that is why so often we hear people in power talking about the name of Jesus. Because it is powerful. Whether it's accurate is another story. But it's certainly powerful. What's interesting, though, is though this holy story is powerful, it's not quite the power that we expect. Now, this has been Jesus' thing throughout all the Gospels. Just a few weeks ago, we were celebrating Palm Sunday. All of Jesus' followers were expecting a king in royal robe and crown to ride into Jerusalem, overtake everybody, and say, This is my kingdom now, Rome. Instead, he came on a a colt. Or other gospels say a donkey. Not quite the king that we had hoped for. And he didn't always give space to the most powerful, the ones with the most influence, the ones who could afford to pay for the influence. No, Jesus brought people from the margins, from the sidelines of life, and brought them to the center. That's a strange use of power. And when he met all these people that were on the margins of that society and brought them near, he met them with healing and restoration. You who have not sinned, cast the first stone. Amongst many, many other stories. This power is meant for healing and forgiveness and not wielding for vengeance. God's most powerful act, the story that is most powerful, is that at the moment when it would seem most likely to exert a judgmental violence, God does absolutely the opposite. When it seems like the most Hope should be lost for individuals who were against this God, this Jesus, who was nailed to a tree and then came back to life. There is promise for mercy and forgiveness. What God promises and accomplishes is life rather than death, freedom rather than confinement, repentance and forgiveness rather than murder and revenge. And that, my friends, is power. This most powerful story, this most holy story, the one that makes us show up on the Sunday after Easter when we're all a little tired, and we all have things that we have to do, but we show up anyway, is one of mercy. It's one of giving and not taking. And in that, it shakes the foundations of human domains because too often, this holy story is the opposite one. It's opposite to the one that we set in motion. I've always found it interesting, and now I actually can think about it, is it's always interesting that we seem to preach the cross way more than we preach the resurrection. We talk a lot more about what happened on Friday than we do on Sunday. We talk more about putting this stuff up than we do empty tombs, or goodness sakes, anything else that would show that we are resurrection people. And I wonder why. 
Why are we so determined to talk about the cross and not the empty tomb? Why are we so determined to talk about death and not life? And I think it's because this powerful, holy story is really hard to swallow. It is so much easier to listen to a tactile and violent story that can talk about retribution. Even if we're not on the side that did it, or we don't perceive that we're on the side that did it. It's so much easier to tell that story, because that's the story far more often woven into our lives, isn't it? Somebody does something wrong, and you make sure to get them back. That, I think, is half of parenting, is to try to avoid that kind of retribution with siblings. And the other one is making sure that they're clean, I guess. And I think that this story of the cross, the story of death, the story of violence, even in its backwards way, is one that gives us as humanity power. Because in the end, it's the one that we had responsibility for. We as humans were part of that, even though sometimes we forget that Jesus even said, this wouldn't happen if God didn't say it was going to happen. But it gives us a chance to have some control. We can be the ones to place Jesus on the cross. We can again become the center of the story of faith. But the resurrection, this holy story, does not have that as its thesis. It tells the story that in spite of everything we might try to receive otherwise— no matter how much we would want to do retribution to others, no matter how much we'd want to perceive a a story of vengeance, God will grant us mercy. It breaks my heart to think that we would ever think of this resurrection story as a way to get somebody else. As a way to see someone else that we can wag their finger at. You don't get this resurrection. You don't get to learn this holy story. God changed nature itself, brought life from death in order to give us mercy. And God will continue to do it in a way that is consistent to who Jesus has always been. God will continue to show mercy to those who are broken, those who are on the margins, and those whose voices are too often silenced. By the high priests in the high places wanting the apostles to go to prison and shut their mouths. So how do we live into this? We're going to start these few weeks together, and we're going to think, well, what does it mean to live into this holy story? And I think our temptation is always going to be to want to follow the world's authority, to live in ways that we could define in political terms of retribution, of vengeance, of wanting to tear the other person down so that we can be high enough, that enough people will vote for us, that we can be in positions of power, maintain that power, and so long as we're on the good guy's side, we're doing fine. But the second we're on the other side, this Jesus story is not for you. What would it be like instead to only answer to God? Alpha 
and Omega, the one who is and was and always will be, the one who came into this world defenseless, lived amongst us, died, was buried, and was resurrected three days later. What would it be like to live under that authority instead? What would it be like to live primarily in a framework of mercy? What would it be like to live primarily in a framework of grace? I think it would mean that we would move more often towards life and less often towards death. More often towards flourishing and less often towards degradation and violence. It might mean that there would be some moments where we would hope where previously we may have despaired. It may mean that in the midst of power we can say we answer to an authority that provides mercy and grace and hope against those who would want to say otherwise. And we might be able to unravel some of the deepest knots in our lives and culture if we slowly start pulling on this message. Every week I get a little bit more worried of sending my children to kindergarten. Not because of, you know, everything I probably should be afraid of, right? But because the world is unkind. The world is angry. Even in the midst of young life, we hurdle ourselves towards death, towards looking at crosses rather than looking at empty tombs. And every week I get a little bit more worried when you all leave here on Sunday. Because this world is angry. And it's bent towards death and not life. Bent towards holding on to what little we have. But it may mean if we just hold on to this idea of grace just a little bit. This resurrection happening. That maybe some of these places where we want to knot ourselves up in such anger might unravel. I want that for my kids. I want that for you. The downside, though, is it may mean those who have considerable power in human terms will resist as they do here in Acts. Because at the end of the day, the resurrection is a holy story that demands releasing our hold on aggressive power. But in the end, what do we hope for? Do you always want to live in a place where there is a tyrant who will tell you what to do and what not to do? And if you speak out of line, you go to prison? I don't think most of the time that's people's ideal. I think most of the time people's ideal is life after death. We can live it now. So here's what I want us to do this week. I don't want you to go stand at a street corner and Tell somebody, you're not doing the right thing. Repent. I would rather just spend a week tuning our hearts and minds to where this is happening. Sometimes awareness is the most important thing. Where are the places right now where people are living towards the cross? Who are so determined to take the power for themselves that they will nail the hope that is given to them to death? And where are those living 
into the resurrection? Where are those moments when you can live into the resurrection? I will tell you one story and then I'm done. And I put this on Facebook, but it seems appropriate now. One morning, we're getting ready for breakfast. It's Abe and Frankie and I, and we're sitting and we got biscuits out because every once in a while, I like making, making biscuits and we put things on. I get, get, you know, I put the eggs in the microwave because I don't have that much time to like actually cook them. So we're sitting together and I'm making their sandwiches. And Abe opens up one half of the biscuit, tears off a piece, hands it to me, and he says, the bread of life. And Frankie lifts up a biscuit, turns it over, and says, the bread of life. And they do it three or four times to the point that it is a joyful game for us that communion, this time when we celebrate together, could be something that happens in the home That is resurrection life. Now, the liturgical part of me and the one who went to seminary is like, this might be a little inappropriate. But for a moment, I saw what resurrection living can look like. Where life can spring forth from the mundane heading towards death. And that's just one. Find the places. Tune your hearts and tune your minds this week. Our story next week is going to be about Saul converting to Paul, which talk about a total attuning to God. But for this week, just observe. Just witness. May the resurrection always be near us. Thanks be to God.